a moment of transparency and vulnerability for me right now. As a pastor, uh, I've been down lately. I don't know if you can tell. I've been sick for a long time. This has never happened to me. Uh, something like cold or flu or anything related to the you know, nose, mouth, and throat. I mean, I, t- I take some lemon juice, chuck it, drink maybe like five, six liters of water, get some rust, and I'm over it. But for some reason, this cold and this flu that's been on me, it's, it's, it's been about two weeks now. And uh, the, incessant, the incessant cough at night, you know, when you're trying to sleep and you're constantly coughing and you're lacking sleep and you're tired and you're exhausted and, uh, you know, if you're physically sick, then you get emotionally sick, you get stressed out and it affects your spirituality and, uh, I, yeah, I didn't really doubt. <laughs> and there's been other things that, are, that have been going around that has been crushing upon uh, my soul as well, so um, physically, mentally, spiritually, socially, emotionally, uh, as a pastor, as a man, as a husband, as a father, I freely confess that I have not been where I needed to be. Um, so that's my honest confession before you. And I know what you're thinking, right? Um, pastors are not supposed to be down, you know? They're supposed to be all spiritual, confident, strong, courageous, enthusiastic, passionate, always on the spiritual high, you know, leading people. You know, pastors are not, pastors are not, are not supposed to, to be down. But, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm a pastor and yet at the same time a human being. And uh, it's just been rough lately. And... Um, and I just want to share that in light of the topic that we're going to discuss this morning. And the topic that we're talking about this morning is not often not talked about much in church. And it's the topic on depression. This human condition is, has been a taboo subject. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a real Christian, you're not supposed to be depressed at all. You're supposed to be happy, jolly. I got the jolly, jolly, jolly. And you got to pretend that you're happy. Oh, happy, silent, and happy, happy. You're supposed to always work up this happiness. You're never, never supposed to be depressed, you know. Um, and I want to just kind of destroy that myth this morning. Um, uh, back in August 11, 2014, I was scrolling through the news, and I almost just dropped my phone because... To my utter shock, Mrs. Doubtfire himself. Oh, some people actually know Mrs. Doubtfire. Man, awesome. All right. I mean, Robin Williams, one of the funniest, inspiring person on the planet. He committed suicide. This was back about two years ago. I mean, this was also John Kidding from Dead Poets to Society. Anybody heard of that whole society? Okay, so okay. Company, company, company. Seize the day. Wow. 
When I first came across that post to society, I was so inspired. I, I mean, I became a fan of Robin Williams like the minute I encountered him. And this was also Patch Adams, one of my favorite, all-time favorite movies. You know, laughter is the best medicine, and he actually cures this old lady of her particular, um, um, I guess, depression by having her swim in spaghetti. Oh, wow. That has always been a fascinating, a fascinating passion of hers. And, um, man, in any level, like if it's Good Morning Vietnam, right? I mean, any movie or anything that he did, Robin Williams, he was one of the most funniest and inspiring people of all time, and he just ended his life. And through the recent years, we see that many beautiful people in this world just end themselves, just kill themselves. I don't know if you guys noticed, but suicide is the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds right now. Second leading cause of death. And there is one death by suicide in this country once every 12.3 minutes. So in the span of our worship time together, at least 5.2 people will have committed suicide in this country. Depression is a serious issue in our society. And it's almost an epidemic. Many people, due to a sense of despair, loneliness, and total aloneness, right? But as I, as I said, in the church world, right? For many years, if anyone was depressed or struggling, what did the church say? Just read the Bible, you'll be fine. Just pray more, you'll be fine. Or, the problem is, you don't have enough faith. Have more faith. Right? This is what the church used to say. And these are like pompous moments, right? Like, oh, wow. why do we even say that, right? There's a definite role that the Bible, prayer, and faith plays in the life of the Christian, right? But this is not the way we should treat people or talk to people while people are going through the most devastating times in their lives. And we act as if, and we've acted as if, the people in the Bible didn't have a struggle. But they did. In fact, if you read the Bible very carefully, you'll find that many characters in the Bible were depressed people. They had those high moments and they had the lowest moments of the valley. They had both of these moments, joy in one moment and depression in another. But somehow, as Christians, we assume that if we are the right type of Christian, and if you're doing the Christianity just right, we will never be discouraged or never depressed, never be depressed. And we don't even talk about it when we come to church. It's like, how, how are you been? Oh, good, fine, yes, Sally, everyone's good, everything's good. And you know that while you're saying that, you were struggling this past week. All the struggling that's happening, somehow it cannot come to the surface when you're around with other Christians who seem to have it all right. So the assumption is, if you're doing Christianity right, you'll never be discouraged. 
But I came to this passage of scripture and it just revolutionized the way I viewed depression and despair and loneliness and all of that. And it was read to us, um, the part portion of it was read to us by Daniel this morning, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 19. If, you're, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to go through this entire story together. I want to actually read it together and add some insights into it because I want you to fully grasp the context of the story and get the lessons that you desperately need. And uh, the context to this story in 1 Kings 1 uh, through 119, okay? The context and background is Elijah just had the most amazing moment in his life. He was on Mount Carmel. He had the biggest victory over the prophets of Baal, all the false prophets. He prayed to God and fire came down and he showed everyone in Israel who the true God was. Right? This was a high moment. Elijah single-handedly destroyed all the false prophets and restored true worship in Israel. And it was an amazing and awesome moment. And then, what happens? Right? And we pick it up in verse 1. Now Ahab, so Ahab was the king in Israel during the time of Elijah. And he just heard what happened at Mount Carmel. And Ahab was a little tattletale and a little wimp and coward. And he was actually governed by Jezebel, his wife. So Ahab actually told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger, messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this sign tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now, stop right there. Pause for a moment. After he had that amazing victory, after God showed him who he was, after he had killed all the prophets of Baal, he just gets this, uh, what is it, a threat from Jezebel. You know, you think after he went through all that he went through, you think that Elijah will go bring it on, woman. Let's see what you got. You know, we think that's what Elijah will do. But what does he do? He said, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Because that's really consistent to what just happened in Mount Carmel, right? But that's what he did. Now, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might, what? Die. Now, I want you to understand that in the Bible, Elijah was not the only person that struggled with thoughts of suicide. He wasn't the only one. There are countless others like Elijah, like Jeremiah, Jonah, and even Moses who wanted to die, who wanted to be killed. They actually asked God to kill them. And Elijah here just says, I, I just want to die. We pick it up in verse 5. He says, I've had, had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. 
that he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is his reply. This is a classic reply. And you've got to remember this reply. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down their altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, have you been atten- paying attention, God? My life is a mess. I'm, about, I'm a fugitive right now. And I'm about to die. And I want to die. Which, which doesn't really make sense, but I don't want to be, be killed by them, but I want to die. You know, this is what Elijah is saying. And, his, and the Lord said, And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, and it is the second, second time, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats himself. He replied, I have embraced zealous for the God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected the covenant, torn down the altars, and put their prophets to death with their sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Oh God, weren't you listening before? I'm telling you again, you have like Alzheimer's because I just told you this, and you ask what I'm doing here, my life is a disaster, you're not helping out, I'm running for my life, I hope to die, they want to kill me, I have a dilemma, I don't want them to kill me, but I want to die. <laughs> this is Elijah, right? This is his situation, his moment. And then this is what God says. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elijah son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And then it goes on. And this is amazing here. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elijah son of Shaphat. He was plying the twelve yoke of oxen, and himself was dragging the twelve pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now you get the story, right? You get background, you get context, you got the full story from the beginning to the end. Okay? This was the lowest moment in Elijah's life. A moment when he felt utter despair and hopelessness. And this is an important reminder for all of us that someone we admire, someone who stands as a Bible hero, 
He came to the end of himself, ran for his life, hid on the broom bush, and said, God is coming. This is a Bible hero we're talking about. The man of God, the man of faith, the, the, the very man who called fire down from heaven. He had this moment. And we learned that success, better yet, spiritual success does not immune us from depression. Elijah just sealed himself as one of the most awesome prophets of all time. He had a huge success and then he came crashing down. And here's the first point that we need to remember as a church. Success won't immune you from depression. From outside vantage point, a person like Robin Williams, who enjoyed a huge amount of success, wouldn't be depressed. But he was not immune to depression. Some of you actually believe that you're only depressed because you're not successful yet. Because you, you haven't arrived yet. That's why you're depressed. But I tell you what. You can trade your life with anyone successful right now and you still be suffering from depression. Success won't immune you from depression. I don't care how much money you have, I don't care what kind of fame, power you possess, everyone deals, has to deal with depression. It's a natural phenomenon in life. If you're a human being, if you're a broken, sinful being, you will suffer from depression. And if you do not know how to deal with depression now, you will definitely not know how to deal with it when you are indeed successful. So you need to prepare yourself right now, if you're not successful, to deal with depression when it hits you later. Solomon, the richest and wisest man of all time, he was so depressed that he said what? Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And he wanted to what? Just call everything life meaningless. And this is a guy who had 1,000 wives, all the gold in the world, the wisdom of like, what, Socrates and all the philosophers combined, right? And he was suffering from depression as well. Depression is always an internal struggle. It comes from the voices within. And we see that a sense of emptiness or depression doesn't mean the absence of God. Sometimes when we're down, when we're in despair, or when we're depressed, especially me for the last two weeks, right? I was sick, and I was tired, I was exhausted, I was constantly stressed, and I was always kind of like, all, uh, just like emotional. <coughs> and it's at times like this, we feel that God is absent, or God is distant, and God doesn't care, God is nowhere to be found. That's what we normally assume. We assume that because God is not with me, that's why I'm down. God's not with me anymore, that's why I'm depressed. But guess what? God was with Elijah. God never left Elijah. Elijah began to run for his life and God's like, you're not going anywhere with me. And he's got stuff running with Elijah, right? And when Elijah's hiding in the broom bush, you're not going there alone. He's actually right by him on the broom bush. Right? And he's, he's, he's like, oh, I'm the only one left. And God's like, you're, no, you're not. And everything that he's, he's doing, he's sensing, you know, Elijah at the lowest moment of his life, God was right there with him. 
And this is what we need to remember as a church, as individuals. When we're depressed, when we're despair, when we're like, ah, oh, right? we just want to die. Whenever you feel that moment, the person that is closest to you is God. Never, ever forget that. Because oftentimes we get so enamored and captivated by our own emotion that we forget that God is right beside us when we need Him the most. And this is the truth that we need, we need to hold on to because all emotions tell us otherwise. But there is a greater objective truth that is very present with us because God is Emmanuel. God is with us. God set His tabernacle among His people in Exodus because He wanted to be with His people. God became flesh and dwelt among us because He wanted to be with us. He died on that cross and took all our sins because He wanted to be with us forever. If that's God's intention, to be with us forever, why would He leave us at the moment of our despair. That's inconsistent. That's not the God of the Bible. But many times, we feel that God loved us. But God is right there. And He's saying, you want to God is with us. <laughs> not only is He with us, He's He's helping us sleep and feeding us. And Elijah's having his worst moment and God is right there. Don't let anyone tell you that because you're depressed that God has left you. Don't you ever buy into that lie. Nothing can be further from the truth. A sense of despair isn't proof that God's distant. It's just proof that you're human and broken. And that we're all sinners. The sense of emptiness, disconnection, depression, despair are evidence that you're insincere or that God isn't happy with you. The brokenness, the depression is a re reminder that we need God. And this is what we need to remember. And here's a third point. The lows will always come after the highs. This is very important. The lowest moment in a pastor's life is Saturday night or Sunday morning. Like you have a spiritual life, you preach your heart out, and you're like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, he's alive. And everyone was inspired, and you come Sunday morning, God, please tell me. I'm so tired, it sounds good. How can I go through this week? The, the lows will always come after the highs. And it's interesting because you go to camp meeting, you go to a rally, you go to some kind of spiritual retreat, and you have this high, and come Monday morning, you're like, oh, I just want to die. The lows always come after the highs. And we, 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 we really need to know this. The lows are called lows because they come after the highs. Job. Some people, when they come to faith, they replace their addictive personality with God. Do you, guys, do you guys know what, what that means? Addictive personality is when you use God for your addiction. So you, you needed something and God was around and you're using God to get high. Okay? So that's an addictive personality. 
So people with addictive personality has a moment when they say, Jesus, you're awesome! And then and the next moment it's like, where are you? you know, this is addictive personality disorder. And these people think they're only spiritual when they're spiritually high about Jesus. And if you're not high, then you let God down. But here's the truth that I want all of us to notice. When you're dependent on a spiritual high, that shows how spiritually immature you are. Okay? Man, we all love those highs. Love those moments when we feel alive, right? Especially in camp meetings when you're surrounded by all your friends and you're worshiping God and you're fellowshipping and you have incredible games and activities and you're, you're holding hands together and you're singing together and you're just like, oh man, Jesus is so awesome, so real. We love those highs. Okay? We love those highs. We love the moments where we're excited about life and God. And when God is awesome, you're awesome, everyone's awesome, we're all one happy family. We love those moments. Right? But, if I think that my proof of my relationship with God, if I think that's my proof of my relationship with God, I'm going to live my life as the slave to my emotions, not the master. It's the emotions that own you, not God. And you'll become slaves to another high, then to another high, then to another high. Spiritual immaturity shows up when you do not have the consistent presence of God in your life. You will only be dependent on what? Your emotions. After Elijah had the highest moment, he was most vulnerable for the lowest moment. And we need to remember that. And lastly, we see that Elijah thought he was the only one left. He said, Ah, the only one left. There's no one. And God goes, Not really. Um, Because there's like 7,000 others who have not bowed down to Baal, right? Elijah, you might think that you're all alone, but you're not even one in ten or even a hundred. You're one in seven thousand. In fact, I want you to go put your mantle on Elisha, because not only are you not the only one left, I got someone that's going to take your place. This is what, what, what God's saying. Sometimes in our lives, we actually feel like we're the only one that is going through what we're going through. Right? We're the only one that is depressed, has no money, no girlfriend, no nothing, no life, and always with my Netflix, and that kind of thing, right? Sometimes you just feel like you're the only one. No one can understand you. No one can empathize with you. You're the only one that's going through that. That is the worst deception of Satan. (laughs) If you ever think you're alone, please know that you're not alone. There are so many others that are going through the same thing. And there are so many others in the spiritual community that is willing to pray for you, be able to walk alongside with you, and you know, provide that support you need. The message is, you're not alone. You're not the only one left. Okay? Growing up as the only child, okay? I'm the only child. And that has its 
ups and downs, <laughs> highs and lows, right? And I had some serious childhood trauma because when I first came to the States, I was wanta like crazy. You guys know wanta? It's actually being a loner, right? So I first came to the States, I had no friends, I couldn't speak any English, and the, all the other guys that actually was here for a long time, they all walked out of me, right? And they actually made fun of me and did everything they could to make my life miserable. So I was already alone and I felt even more alone, and I was just like, that was a serious trauma. And one of the people that actually walked out of me the most was like a pastor's kid. And I was like, all pastor kids are evil except me. <laughs> because I'm a pastor's kid. And sadly, and I hope this never happens to me either, pastor's kids have issues. I have issues, right? And uh, because of the aloneness and growing up, and because of the trauma I went through, there are times when I feel incredibly alone. Just so utterly alone. Right? It's weird because with a beautiful family, right? An incredible spiritual community like this, and an awesome Apple Watch like this, right? You know, you think that my life would be perfect, you know? And I will never feel alone, and I will never feel lonely or be in despair. But there are some times when I feel really alone, and it happens. And it's in those moments when I have to constantly remind myself that I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. There's 7,000 others. There's 7,000 others who are faithfully proclaiming the Word of God and living a life of faith and are doing the best that they can to serve God. This is what I need to constantly remind myself. And that's something that we need to do all together because we are not alone. There is actually a quote by Robin Williams that really just ripped my heart apart. He says this, I used to think the worst thing in life was to end up all alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is to end up with people who make you feel alone. Do you understand how important church is? How important it is for us to have a true, authentic, spiritual community. Just because we're all together sitting down now in a worship setting, it doesn't mean that everyone doesn't feel alone. There's some of you right now that's feeling all alone. And that's sad because you're in a spiritual community that is trying everything we can to bring people into a sense of community. See, churches, if we're not careful, we can make people feel more alone than when they first arrived at church. And this is why it is so important for us to create an environment and a space where people do not feel alone. How do we actually make, isolate people and make people feel more alone? We actually judge them, condemn them, and kind of look at them weird. And if they're dressing wrong, if, you're, if they're not, if, you, if they do not have the capability of interacting normally and socially, we kind of just kind of just put them off and you know put them in a little box and make them feel even more alone in church. That is the worst sin we can commit as a church community. Worst sin. 
Because the worst thing in life is not to end up alone, but to end up with people who make you feel alone. And if church people are people who make you feel more alone, what has the church done? It has committed one of the greatest sins. Because Jesus, what did he do? Whether you were a prostitute, whether you were a beggar, whether you were a drunkard, whether you were a tax collector, whether whatever class of society, whatever background, how much you had or did not have, whatever your background, Jesus said, I love you. You belong to me. I belong to you. We're a family. And this is the spirit that we need to revive and restore in this church. Becoming the most welcoming, warmest, and loving church with open arms, with anyone that comes to the church, we would make them feel so loved that they are so glad that they made a choice, the decision to come to church. It is very important for us to create a church, an environment where people experience love, acceptance, forgiveness, and warm embrace. By the time Sabbath is done, people are empowered, encouraged, and loved on, and filled with the Spirit, and filled with God's love, that they are now so confident, walking into a new week of life, they can be victors and conquerors of the world. This is the church, this is the worship experience we want to have as a church community. Amen? Alright, some quick steps. And this is the last thing that I'm going to give before we end this morning. Some quick steps from the Bible passage as a reminder for those who are going through depression or who is about to, okay? And here's some steps that we're going to take. Alright, the first step that the Bible talks about is get some rest. God let Elijah just sleep. Isn't that amazing? If I was God, right? And Elijah was moaning and whining and crying and distressed. I'd probably just kick him in the rear and say, Get your depressed butt up and get back to work. This is probably what I would have done because I have no empathy and sympathy, right? That's probably what I would have done. But God does something entirely different. God sees Elijah depressed and he goes, What? He makes him sleep. This is what God does. You know, have you ever seen a two-year-old that is just wanting to sleep but can't sleep? <laughs> like, I see, you know, I went, Julia, honey, 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 I'm jealous, and then he's not wanting to sleep, right? And <laughs> when human beings lack sleep, and lack the rest it needs, it becomes less than a human being. This is, this is what I've observed with two-year-olds, and this is what I've observed with any human being. If you cram in all-nighters, and you study for a test, in about two or three days, no one should touch you, right? I mean, if anyone touches you, don't touch me. Okay? Sleep is a very important and vital factor in life. And God knows that. And when you're depressed, what you need to do is what? You need to sleep. And when God says, 
Tota, tota. You just, you just need to sleep. What is the second thing God did? He said, get some food. And this is, you see how awesome God is? He feeds Elijah. He said, like, He feeds him. I just love the fact that God wakes him up and says, here's the food, here's the food. Eat. Isn't that awesome? God doesn't all go like Deuteronomy 12, the man shall live by the word of God. Get your butt up and go back to it. This is not what God says. He actually says, get up and have some food. The best thing to do when a friend is depressed is to get some food together. And when you're depressed, go to Nori Nori and just have some food. <laughs> go to whatever place you need to go to, just have some food. Okay, number three, guess in perspective. It's, it's, it's amazing because God actually sends a fire, thunder, like, you know, all this earthquake, and God is not in any of those things, right? And God is in the whisper. And what does it whisper do? Okay, here's the thing. When do you whisper? When the person is close enough. You have to be literally like, Right by, you have to be like right by the ear, almost kissing the ear to whisper, right? And what is God saying? I'm not in the earthquake, I'm not in the fire, I'm not in any of those noisy, lousy things out there. I'm in a whisper right by your ear. This is who I am. God is one who whispers. And He whispers because He is close enough to us. I actually read a story where when you get angry, you begin to shout, right? You scream. Why does your voice get louder when you get angry? Because you feel that the other person is far. <laughs> Emotionally, you have been like, you're miles away. Like, proximity-wise, if you're physically close, but if you're emotionally distant and you are angry, you say, yeah! Why? Because you feel that person is what? Far. But when you're in love, when you're close, when you're snuggling, when you're cozy, you, you get, do, you, do, you, do you get angry and shout? No. Say, yeah, yeah. I love you. And I'm with you. You know, all the all things. Why? Because you're what? You're close enough. You're whispering. You're whispering. And God is in the whisper. Amen? Yeah. Fourth thing, get some people. What God does is amazing because God gets Elijah to anoint people, delegate to responsibilities, and has them connect and network with other people. Because Elijah has been trying to do this alone, and he goes, Go anoint this person, go anoint this person, go anoint this person. Delegate responsibility. Get your network going. Share the load. Get some people in your life. And God always heals us through human contact. The moment you want to be alone and shy away, I just want to be alone. I just, just leave me alone. The moment that you are compelled to be alone, that's the moment probably you need to engage with another person and start opening up. 
Because normally, because we do not have the communication skills, we often kind of withdraw and kind of just sit alone, listen to that music, or just, just, and then when you're done, you go back out and you socialize again. No, that's not how you cope. God says, get some people in your life. And ask God to send you the right people. People who are optimistic and hopeful, right? When you're around them, you actually do become optimistic and hopeful. You know the people that irritate you the most because they're just happy all the time, right? Get around them, right? Because they're more enjoyable than you. That's why you don't like them. So you need to get some happy, jolly, optimistic, you know, gung-ho people around you and get their perspective. Because they see the good in the world. They see the good in you. And that's the reason that you need to get some people like that in your life. Some happy people. But normally, when Koreans get depressed, especially Koreans, right? You get depressed and you turn on what? Some really sad Korean music. Right? So if you're depressed, you, you turn on the, the, the saddest K-pop. The most depressing K-pop. Like, where is that coming from, right? You need to actually shut out all music, all people that are bringing more depression to your life. And you need to uh, get some fresh sense of perspective and get more people that are optimistic and turn on songs like... I don't even know what songs are. There's some really happy songs. And then number five, get back on track. Get back to what you're called to do, what God has created you to do, and plan to live a life with meaning, okay? And a life filled with meaning comes only when you're giving yourself to others, when you're loving on others. And the, the reason many people are depressed is because they're not loving but want to just be loved. So no one loves me, no one cares about me, I'm alone, no, and it's all about you and you and you. And if you're focused on yourself, and if you're not creating meaning with your life, you will end up becoming more depressed. Okay? So you need to get out there and get back on track and live a life that you were called to live. Last one. Be careful who you listen to. Discern which voice you are listening to. Whether it's Jezebel or God. Elijah listened to the voice of Jezebel and that has ruined him. It has, given, it has taken him down into a path of depression. And what he needed to hear was God's whisper that was with him. And when he began to pay attention to God, what happened? He was restored. Right? Jezebel or God, which voice is informing you and telling you who you are? Let Jesus be the voice that tells you who you are. People say you're worthless, you don't matter, you always mess up. That's why people say, and Jesus says what? You're beloved, I love you, you matter, you're important to me, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to give you another chance, I'm, I have a purpose and plan for your life. This is the voice that Jesus is saying. And the voice that we always choose to do is what? Oh, we're pathetic. You could even do that. Oh man, you suck. Oh, did you just do it? And this is the voice that we listen to. And you gotta, you gotta discern which voice you will pay attention to. It's very important. And God stops Elijah and asks, What are you doing here? God thunders that question. 
and whispers that question and gets us to listen to him instead. And this morning, if you're in the range of my voice, this morning we want to speak life into you. We want to declare that you matter. We want to proclaim that your life is filled with a brighter future in Christ Jesus. We want to proclaim that God's grace is infinitely, abundantly able and more than able to rescue you from the life of sin and bondage that you're taking yourself into. We want to declare God's promises to your life. Because on Sabbath, the power of the gospel has to be present in you. Because you have worshipped God, because you have sat and prayed and fellowship in the presence of God, what you need to be filled with is the sense that God is with you and that God has forgiven you and that God will be what? Walking with you through the rest of your life. And if, you have, if you're still doubting, and if you're still looking to yourself, and you're still listening to other voice, I pray that you will turn your attention to the voice of God speaking to you this morning. And God is saying, you matter. You're valuable. You're, you are worth my life. And if I had to do it all over again, I would die for you personally. This is what God is saying. And I hope that's the conviction and that's the assurance that all of us have as we depart from this place. I want to invite the closing hand people to come forward. And as, as we're about to sing this closing hand, I want us to engage in a season of prayer. I don't know where you've been for the last week. I don't know what's going on with your emotional life, your family life. I don't know what, what, what all is going on with you personally right now. But I want us to all close our eyes where we are. And hear the whisper. God's whisper this morning. Let's close our eyes. And hear the whisper. Sing. I love you. You matter. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are mine. Go ahead and hear that whisper and thank God for his reassurance. And we'll sing a closing hymn.